Hello, good evening, and welcome. Welcome to the TNT Show. I'm your host, John Drummond, and I can guarantee you, you'll be joining us for another 60 exciting minutes. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. I give you this gem from the Telegraph today, and I kid you not. It says, Biden, i.e., the new president, Biden's great-great-great-grandfather, Edward Blewett, left Ballina County Mayo, Ireland, for America during the Irish famine 170 years ago. And listen to this. This is verbatim. Which could mean he is well disposed to Great Britain. <laughs> Do you think someone ought to tell them that if you starve some, someone's, someone's kinfolk, that endears them to you? I, I just don't get this. Anyway, thanks for joining us this evening. We have yet another great guest, and I'm really excited that she's with us. And I'm really, she, she's a celebrated author on childhood, but not just that. Let, let me just read this to you. Sue Palmer is a former primary head teacher in Scotland. She's a literary expert, literacy expert, writer, presenter, and childhood campaigner. She has written over 200 books, 200 books, software packages, TV programs for schools on aspects of literacy, and many hundreds of articles for the educational and national press. So you're in for a real treat tonight because over the last 10 years, her books on child development in the modern world, notably, and you might want to get a copy of this later, Toxic Childhood, second edition, 2015, have led to frequent media appearances and comments about changes in children's lifestyle. And her latest book, Upstart, it makes the case for raising the school starting age and providing what the under sevens really need and this was published in 2016. Sue has chaired the Scottish Play Commission, served on the Scottish Government's Early Years Task Force, and she currently chairs the Upstart Scotland campaign. Fantastic. So if, like so many people, you feel that children are our future, you really are in for a treat tonight. Sue Power, welcome to The Nation Talks. How are you coping you. with the pandemic? Um. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I mustn't complain um, because, you know, I'm miles better off than lots of people, you know, being retired, well, officially retired. I just work for nothing these days. Um, but um, I'm, I live alone and I'm used to it. But I do, I do miss people terribly. Yeah. And, and I worry an awful lot. I, I'm, you know, my life these days is, is worrying about children and it's, uh, it's not a good time for them at all. Really. Yeah, it's really tough, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you were born in Salford. Tell us a bit about Salford, your, your background, uh, your family. Well, we come from Irish stock, which was why I was laughing so much about uh, <laughs> the attitude to the famine. I was brought up, actually, for the first four and a half years of my life, mainly by my granny, who was a cleaner at the local school, uh, because my parent, my mum had rather bad postnatal depression, and they said it's a good idea to go back to work. So my parents were working. Uh, so Granny looked after me during the week, and then I was at home at the weekend. And I just remember being incredibly happy. It was one of these little back-to-back -back cottages, you know, with a, a stove with, with an open fire and um, a tap in the back, <laughs> and the, the loo down the bottom of the, the yard. And um, when I, I must have been about two and a half, I think, when my Granny threw me out onto the street to play with the other children, because that was normal. That was what you did. And yeah. All the kids knew that there were lots of grannies and aunties and people around. So if anything went wrong, they could always get someone to help out. And they knew also just how far they could go before they got in trouble with the grown-up. And we played on bomb sites because this was 1952. Yeah. So it was a very different childhood from most. But then when I was, um, I must have been four and a half because that was when my mum was pregnant with my brother. And so she gave up work and I was moved home full time. And all I know is I couldn't work out why I couldn't be with my granny anymore, which is quite hard. I think, you know, I yeah. think I've got a bit of attachment disorder from that. But again, the, then sort of my parents had made enough money to get a wee, very wee, semi-detached house in a suburb of Manchester. And again, the two things I remember mainly about my childhood were um, playing out with the other kids and um, reading. So actually, it's quite interesting that my life has been the first half of my professional career was about reading, it's about literacy. <laughs> Trying to get every child in the world able to read. And then the second half, been, well, not half, it's about quarter at the moment, but it's been about play. 
So yeah. those are the two things that I still really, really care about. Went to the local grammar, got to university, didn't like it. I worked in boutiques. I left, <laughs> decided it wasn't for me. I, oh, my parents made me do typing and shorthand course, which actually I found fascinating because the shorthand was phonetic and I became very interested in yeah. phonetics, which led into the literacy as to some extent. Then I mainly worked in boutiques, which in the late 60s was quite a glam thing to do. Uh, our boutique had a jukebox and we had a good time as girls. And then I got married to someone I'd met at university and um, he got a job in Edinburgh, which I'd barely heard of. There was this place called Scotland I'd heard of. We sang the odd Scottish folk song at school. And then I turned up here one day in 1970. I came up the steps, up the slope from Waverley Station. And I just saw this place. And I dropped my luggage and said out loud, why did nobody tell me? And actually it was, I suppose, love at first sight. Never since then I've wanted to be a Scot. Good, good. Well, I, I think... The general rule is that everyone who comes here and stays here is a Scot, regardless of... Oh, I'm a new Scot. I'm, I consider yeah. myself a new Scot, yeah. Cool. That's cool. That's cool. So at that time, did you have a degree or did you... No, I, I, I went to Murray House and trained oh, as a teacher. That's where I trained as a teacher and then taught in Edinburgh. And then I got a wee country school. It's gorgeous in the borders. And I had a lovely time. It was brilliant. really enjoyed myself. Um, but unfortunately, my marriage broke up and it was all a bit painful and... And so I thought I've got to get a change of scene and um, ended up back at university. I went back to Manchester University and did a master's in um, literacy, then met someone else on the rebound, which again was a big mistake. Uh, there you are. And he took me to Cornwall. I ended up being a, a literacy consultant and, and writer for the press and writer of books and BBC consultant for quite a long time and working for the government and things like that. It was basically in about 1998, that I started being very conscious of the teachers saying that the children were finding it miles more difficult to concentrate. Um, they were seeing far more sort of behavioral issues than they had. Nothing awful, just we change it. And I um, started to wonder what it may be something to do with all the changes in our lifestyles that was impacting on them, which led me into a, an eight year research study basically, which turned into the book Toxic Childhood. Because I was lucky, I was traveling a lot for my work. I could go and interview people all over the place. So I interviewed scores of people from people who knew about diet, people who knew about children's activity and play, people who knew about sleep, family structures, marketing, education, all sorts. So I did a lot. And all of them were saying, yeah, actually, you know, this is, it's not, it's a lot, it's not good for them. Yeah. But I suppose that was when the main thing that bothered me was that the changes, the huge changes in the way children spent their leisure time, because that outdoor play had gone. Yeah. And is that where the toxicity comes or it's is it more partly, general than that? It's partly, it is, I mean, they need actually to be outdoors, social and active. That's, yeah. If you look at evolutionary biology, that's how children have been through the millennia that, you know, they'd be outdoors, they'd be playing, the parents would be around somewhere, but they'd be playing with the other kids. And yeah. that's how it's in our DNA sort of to require that. Yeah. And also they require the love of the family or someone that cares for them. Yeah. But what's happened is that as we weren't able to send our kids out to play anymore, you know, with more and more traffic and fears and, and communities yeah. breaking down, the children became more indoors much more sedentary and, and the screen time displaced yeah. play. Yeah. So it's not so much that watching the telly is bad, although I have to say they are exposed to a lot of marketing influences which aren't necessarily yeah. good for them. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't help with concentration because you don't have to, getting the focus done for you, they're making you focus instead of you learning to focus your attention yeah. on whatever you're doing. But um, it's just that it's those changes. There's so many changes. And at the same time, you've got um, schooling becoming much more competitive than yeah. it used to be. With lots more, um, because it's the whole business of accountability. So there's loads more. It's very easy to get data nowadays. So yeah. they, they, they can do lots of testing. And then everybody comes possessed by the testing. Yeah. Um, and... Um, Really, it's a lot of pressure on kids, yeah. I mean, which I we didn't have in the past. Yeah, good point. I mean, I, I, I had personal experience of this, and it rather took me aback because I wasn't expecting what happened. 
my grandson is, is 16 and uh, we, we were driving across Scotland and for some reason that he said, oh, I'd like to see the bridges from a height. So we went across the Bathgate Hills so he could check out the bridges from a distance, looking towards Fife. And he said, that's really impressive because he lives in uh, Shaftesbury. And uh, he said, this is really, really fantastic, great stuff. I said, I used to cycle here. He says, where? I said, I used, to, I used to cycle around the Bathgate Hills. Oh, really? It must have taken you some time because didn't you live in uh, Uphall? I said, yeah, quite a ways from here, a little ways anyway. He said, uh, you must have been away for some time. Yeah, a whole day. You, how, I don't understand this. How did your parents know where you were? And I said, they didn't know where I was. Mm -hmm. And he just could not. I mean, he just could not handle it. He says, he says, that's just terrible. And, and I said, well, you know, <laughs> you've met them. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but that's a terrible thing. They didn't know where you were. I mean, surely parents should take care of kids. And I said, well, they will take care of me. They treated me like everyone else. I said, because nobody knew where their kids were. <laughs> and he just couldn't take this on board. It just well, I, I, I mean, for me, when I'd finished writing Toxic Childhood, I got, I got an awful lot of, I was in the papers a lot and, and on uh, broadcasts and things, but also doing talks to parents. And I actually found it intensely upsetting because I'd be telling them about it and, I'm, I'm, and it felt as though I was blaming them, which I wasn't. And I kept saying, I'm not saying it's your fault. It's just the way that the, the world's changed. And they're saying, but what do we do about it? What can we do? We can't send no. our children out. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So that was when, um, around about 2014, and perhaps it was because it was 2014, I started thinking, they, they, you know, they're not, they don't get any independence, they're not resilient enough, um, because they've not learnt to be out on their own. Yeah. What can we do? And I, I, I was travelling again a lot in Europe, and Germany, and the Nordic, well, particularly Finland, where I visited a lot, because they tended to do so well in the academic um, international states. Yep. There were kindergarten stage that went from three to seven. Now, that really seemed to me to be, you know, it was play-based. The children had a lot of free time, mostly outdoors. And it, it seemed to me that that gave them that basis of what they need for resilience and all the other yep. things that were naturally different. And, and there was no fussing about whether they learned to read and write. Nobody gave a damn, you know. And yet when they got to seven and they started, they learned very quickly. And the same thing applied, I discovered, when I visited Switzerland, where they, again, don't start till seven. People say Finnish is an easy language to learn because it's phonetically regular. Well, the Swiss are learning in French and German, and some of those kids have got three languages. Yeah. But the same thing happened. They learned when they were about seven, no problem. So then I started researching it, and I, that was when I wrote the book Upstart. It's the British disease to start school when they're only four or five. I mean, it's 88% of countries in the world start either six or seven. Yeah. Most successful ones tend to be seven. We start at four or five because of a decision essentially made in the Westminster government in the late 1860s. And it was mainly oh, economic. Huh? They wanted to get the mums into the factories. So they needed to get the kids out of the way as quickly as possible because otherwise there'd be a problem with them being on the streets. Oh. So you get them into school as quick as you can. And the great advantage of that, they thought, was we can get them out the other end quicker too and yeah. go into the factories themselves. So it was an economic decision. And it was argued in Parliament and lots of people said it's not right. But no, it got through because it was going to be good for the economy. So that's how we got this early starting age. And the problem is that British parents and um, many other ex-empire ex countries, just because we exported it, kindly, actually think that that's the obvious age to start school, and it's not. It's not. So that was why, when I started finding all this out, and I was also looking at the developmental science, and increasingly there was information coming through that was relating the, the real increase in mental health problems in children and young people to the decline of play, and that's now, there's quite a lot of medical people going on about that too. Help me understand this a little bit better, Sue. And this may sound a terribly naive question, and I apologise. What, what, what do kids get from play? Because it's been some time since I was a child. What do kids get from play? Well, all the basic natural capacities on which we build formal education, but which also lead to lifelong well-being. So it's things like creativity, 
curiosity, loving finding things out for yourself and experimenting and learning, social skills, because you learn to get along with the other kids, which is not easy because they usually don't want to share, but you've got to find out how to deal with it. So social skills and how to work together, problem solving, self-regulation, which is this capacity to control your behavior, which takes a long time to develop. It's not, I mean, you know what babies like, we've got to get to the stage when they can sit in a schoolroom and actually concentrate on loads of things. I'm sorry, I can't remember them all. I usually have a PowerPoint. But the, the big one for me at the time when we were doing starting the Upstart campaign was this resilience, because resilience is that capacity to bounce back from difficulties. Yeah. To, to sort of, you know, cope with it. And that's so much developed through active social outdoor play. Yeah. And well, as I say, the American Academy of Pediatrics now is sort of making real noises about we've got to get them out and playing. Yeah. Not just for their physical health, because that's important too, yeah. but also for their mental health. So there were a whole load of people that I, I knew that I was back in Scotland by this time, obviously, and there were a whole load of people that I knew that came from different backgrounds, like um, Suzanne Zedike, the attachment oh, theorist yeah. that you might have heard of, John Carnahan from the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit. Um, he, he was one of the founders of that. People in social services, people in education for sustainability, people in education, but also lots of people in early years that I got to know. And there were a lot of us, and we were thinking the sensible thing would be to have a kindergarten stage. That was when yeah. we set up the Upstart campaign. Right. This may be slightly divergent, but I've been reading a book by James O'Brien, who's uh, an interviewer on LBC, and he talks with enormous passion, really, about his upbringing at boarding school and how he learned things in boarding school that stood him in very bad stead indeed and made it very difficult for him to cope when he became an adult. In other words, all the things that he was sent to boarding school <laughs> to achieve, it turned out the opposite. The outputs were the opposite of what he, his parents wanted, really. And my understanding, not having read the book in its entirety, but having gotten a flavour of it, was that that led him into excessive drinking and a career in journalism where he, he didn't feel very comfortable at all. And it was only after he went for counselling and he was asked to talk to his child, i.e., this is James O'Brien when he was this age, can you talk to him? And he thought, this is nonsense. Why would a, why would a grown-up want to pretend he was talking to himself? And, but he said out of that came enormous help for him. Do you feel that boarding schools also have a, a deleterious effect? Well, Suzanne Zedike recently in, in um, the, the book Scotland After the Virus, um, Simon... Barrett, Jerry Hassan and Simon Barrow. Suzanne's got a, a, a very good chapter on that, about adverse childhood experiences, which is a subject that she particularly majors in. And she lists a, a number of things that adults did because they thought it was the best thing for the children. This is the thing, nobody's doing this stuff to be nasty. But I mean, one of them was sending children away as evacuees during the war, which we all thought was a great idea, but many people really, really suffered from being separated from their yeah. family. Another was um, thing that the business in, back in the 50s, which I remember, that people said, if a child went into hospital, the parents shouldn't visit once a week at the most, because the children would settle better. Yeah. And another one's boarding school. I mean, and the, the great one, which I, I, I couldn't get over when I first started teaching, was the, the, the belt in Scottish schools. Yeah. And the extent to which that was used, everybody, when I first started teaching, assumed that was a good thing, and I just didn't yeah. like it at all. <laughs> yeah. But um, fortunately, it was stopped. And when it was stopped, everybody found you could still manage without it, you know. But also, you were still getting these stories from people about how much they felt damaged by all that belting that went on. I got belted consistently. Yeah. And James O'Brien feels that a lot of the issues that he had to tackle later in life were down to the fact that he, he was physically punished by somebody whom he thinks greatly enjoyed the experience. I have to hasten to add that none of the teachers who belted me ever gave me the impression they were enjoying it. But he said that, unfortunately for him, that was his experience. Toughens them up. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... No, we, we know now that it, there is 
plenty of research now showing that that sort of thing is just dreadful and, and can cause scars. And it, 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 you know, it's, I think the ACES movement that Suzanne leads has been terrific for just helping people realise, you know, that it wasn't their fault. Yeah. But that it, it's not a, it's not good for your physical or mental health long term. If um, children are neglected or, or physically abused or mentally abused, or, you know, made to feel small and useless. So, you know, the, especially in those very, very early years when your brain is actually forming. I mean, it, it's really those first seven years that are critical. And really, we've got to do the very best we can within a different culture, which we've got. And I, I think Scotland has, has risen to it, and apart from the fact that we still haven't got a kindergarten stage. We, I mean, the outdoor thing has got, it's it really improved in nurseries. It's got to move into the beginning of primary school as well. But just get a kindergarten stage <laughs> that yeah. makes sure that it's up to seven. But we've made huge progress. Um, you, you, now you've been advising the Scottish government, is that right? No, I, I was on the earliest task force, um, but that was way back in 2010. Okay. We, th- we thought, actually, when we set up Upstart in 2015, we thought it would be easy because Scotland would see what was going on in the Nordic countries yeah. and we would get there quite quickly. But unfortunately, and this is the same old thing, it's these cultural assumptions and you think you're doing the best. But what happened was that the Scottish government, around about the same time we were just about to get Upstart launched, they were working out what's the next best thing to get to stop the dreadful attainment gap in education between rich and poor. And they worked out a raft of measures, one of which was, of course, accountability procedures. So the introduction of national assessments, standardised national assessments in Scottish primary and early secondary school, starting, of course, so you've got a baseline in primary one. Which is the very worst thing you can do. These poor kids have been dragged out of nursery, put into primary school and tested. And it also affects the, because the teachers are expected to get certain numbers through. I mean, we've got benchmarks for it that you're supposed to reach. Uh, It means that it it affects the the curriculum. So even though the, the, we've actually this year got, no, last year, um, it's called Realising Ambition. It's new practice guidance. I don't know whether you can tell it's got a tartan cover. Yep. This new practice guidance comes from Education Scotland and the Scottish Government for the early level, which takes you right up to the end of primary one into primary yep. two. And it's perfect, absolutely terrific. And I just hope all parents, you can download it off the internet, Realising Ambition. It's called, folks, it's, called, it's by the Scottish Government, it's called Realising the Ambition. And it's got being underneath. Being me. Being me. That's what it's all about up to the age of seven. Right. Being me. And you can get this from the Scottish Government website. You can download it from no, there. You can download If you actually, if you Google Realising the Ambition, it will take you to a PDF. Yeah, you are, folks. So we were thrilled by this, but the trouble is that as long as those wretched tests are still there, yeah. the, the P1 teachers are, are sort of distracted by trying to do literacy yeah. numeracy at an age when it actually isn't. I was a literacy specialist yeah. for all these years. It is not so, necessary to start. I, okay. <laughs> One of my interests... It is the vagaries of government. Who sold the Scottish government on this bill of goods? Keeping very quiet about it, I have my theories, but I have to say it was a real, it really broke my heart because when yeah, we, yeah. we started the Play Not Test campaign and we got a lot of, well, we got the EIS, the, the Teachers Union, we got Children in Scotland, which is the umbrella organisation for children's yeah, yeah. Um, sector. Uh, we got Play Scotland, we got the Ace Aware Nation, we got the Connect, the Parent Teachers Association. Lots of people agreed that we didn't want this thing. Yeah. So we had quite a powerful coalition. And the opposition parties all saw that this was something they'd probably get the government on. So they all decided to go along with the Play Not Test thing. And so suddenly we got this sort of political thing that we were anti the government, which we weren't, we were just trying to make the change policy. Yeah. Of course, then it went to a vote in the parliament and the vote was to scrap the tests. And I have to say that the, the opposition parties had, had, had swatted up really well. They gave some very good reasons in the debate. And I'm afraid John Swinney's answers weren't particularly good, but they still kept the tests. Yeah. Okay. And that's meant that Upstart has sort of lived up to its name <laughs> and been seen as a, a sort of a political thing, which it as genuinely a isn't. Shame. As a kind of shame. Genuinely isn't. 
Sue, I'd like to take some questions now because we've got loads of questions coming in. Oh, could I just say one last thing yeah. before before you do? Okay. You said that my last book was Upstart. It wasn't. This is the last book I've had out. Okay. It, it came out. It's not me that wrote it. I'd wrote some bits of it. I edited okay. most of it. And it is called okay. Plays the Way. And it came out last October. Who are the and publishers? it's already had to go to reprint three times. Good. Who are the publishers? So, the publishers are Postcards from Scotland. Postcards um, from Scotland. If you go on the Upstart website and go into the news section, you get a link okay. to it. Okay. Play is the way, folks. Play is the way. Um, Thank you for that. Appreciate Upstart it. Upstart website news section. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Needed to say that. We've got a whole raft of questions. I'll try and take them in some sort of logical order. Hashbury Stumble is asking, would Sue agree that many practical lessons can be solved by children through play, which is not always the case for all participating through sport? You mean play is different from sport? The suggestion is that they're not quite the same thing. No, they aren't. No. But sport grows out of play. It's just like a sort of formalised yeah. play. Okay. In fact, many things are formalised play. Art is, you know, playing about with colour and, and music. Okay. You play the piano, don't you? So yeah, there's, so there's, there's sort of grown up play, but children's play is really just messing about. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, is it, would you call it unstructured? In that it's, sense? Uh, yeah, self-directed. Yeah, um, they, 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 they just choose what they want to do. This is real play. Um, it's personally, they, they, they decide how to do it. It's self-chosen, personally directed, intrinsically motivated activity, which actively engages the child. That's the play worker's definition. And it's just, it comes from within the child. As adults, we, we've got work to do and things, so, so we, we don't play as much as... Although I must say, on our WhatsApp group, we do play away a lot uh, with ideas an awful lot and have a good laugh. But most, much of the play with grown-ups is formalised in some way. Yeah. Another question here is, Peter Smith is asking, what's Sue's thoughts on kids using iPads and similar devices as it seems to be replacing outdoor play and real-world socialising? My thoughts are that I would be lost without my technology now, and children are growing up in a world full of technology. Yeah. But as much as possible, I think, if we can get that first seven years right, if we can make sure that through that period, life's real, because they need to learn about real life. So real life experience with real people in, in real time and space is vital in those first, first years. Okay. After that, hopefully develop some like the curiosity and all the other things and they can start moving in more into the virtual world now obviously there's no way of avoiding it even yeah. in the early years but really keep it as as much real as possible until they're about seven or so and that the american academy of pediatrics incidentally recommends absolutely very very minimum minimum up till the age of about two or three yeah two definitely um Nowadays, you can't get away without doing FaceTime with grannies and granddads and things, but as little as possible. Yeah. And then sort of generally let it build up. But they need to use the things. Um, I must say, I don't think iPads are good for babies or toddlers at all. Yeah. They, they all want to watch children's telly and stuff. Yeah. And I certainly know, uh, having done two books, one book on boys and one book on girls' development, I am incredibly aware of the dangers of online browsing on your own without the grown-ups knowing yeah. do yeah. go there's a great police the police have a, a an, an online safety website which yeah. is excellent good honestly it's really worthwhile getting up on that yeah hazel rankin she feels that you're right that now is the time for a kindergarten stage she feels that our children need it more than ever and she says boarding schools are linked to aces a-c-e-s and attachment. We can all do our best until we know better. What is ACES? ACES is, is a short form of, I, I talked about adverse childhood experiences. Oh, okay. Which right. is, uh, and, and Suzanne Zedek started up a movement called the ACE Aware Nation. She wants everyone in Scotland to, to know the science behind this because she thinks it, well, we know actually because the, it's already changing a lot of people's um, professional practice, a lot of teachers' ways of looking at things. Once you know about it, you realise you know, it's not a good idea to do things like um, humiliating children in classrooms and that sort well, of thing. In that case, listen to these horror stories. Somebody was written in to say, I was belted by my Latin teacher for every mistake. Somebody else said, I remember the whole class getting belted because Gosh. somebody in the class was making noise and the teacher couldn't identify 
the culprit. And then Joe Turner says, I remember when I was 10 being belted 14 times in one day, mostly for spelling mistakes. I mean, that it, it made him a brilliant speller. I mean, it just sounds horrendous. It is horrendous. And I mean, actually, I don't know whether you know, but this year is the year that we are, um, Scotland has been really good lately on children's rights. We um, raised the age of criminal responsibility. And last year, we, we've had the smacking ban. Yeah. And they're now going to incorporate the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child into Scots law this year, all being well. It's going through Parliament as we speak, I believe. And as a result of that, it's been agreed that 2021 is going to be the year of childhood. Yeah. And I was doing a Zoom yesterday with some people that are involved in it. And one of the ideas that was being mentioned was that because, you know, I don't think anybody thought, oh, let's belt kids because it will make them ill in the future <laughs> or make them miserable for the whole of their lives. They, they thought it was what you needed to do to keep discipline in schools. One of the things somebody said was, um, what about we set up a website for people to, to, to record that, what happened to them before it all gets forgotten? Because yeah. we need to know and remember this stuff. So uh, there's going to be hopefully lots of things going on for the year of childhood. I mean, at the moment, they've got a big vote going on for children aged 8 to 14 to see what they think are the most important things for Scotland to do in the future. It'd be yeah. quite interesting to know what the kids think. But there should be lots going on under that uh, banner of year of childhood. And I, I think, you know, as, as Hazel said, if, if any year is a year to really look closely at what we need to do, this is the year. So um, that's one of the reasons we're so glad we got the book out, because it, it basically gives all the rationale from every single perspective, public health, sustainability, children's rights, everything. Yeah. <laughs> And I take it people can get the book from Amazon or wherever. Honestly, we've not been able to get it on Amazon because as soon as a, another consignment comes in, it's going out. I mean, I have never known a book go oh, to reprint like this. The quickest thing is the Upstart website. Go into News and you'll see a thing called Players the Way and that gives all the links to anything and some information about it. Exactly. Warda Osman has raised a question that was I was just about to ask you. We're in a very undesirable environment right now, all of us. And her question is, due to the COVID pandemic and kids being moved onto screens for online learning, how do we ensure our kids still retain the act of play? How do you do it during a pandemic? Well, I mean, I'm hoping that the parks and things are still open and the play parks, they, they did close at the beginning of the first lockdown, but I'm, I'm hoping that they've blocked now, that those are really important. Local wild places, most, most places have, you know, some, somewhere with a bit of greenery about it, if you can, yeah. you know, just walk a wee bit. The main thing is just to get them outdoors as much as we can. But what, what about the other point you said was terribly important, which is mixing with other kids? Yeah. How do they mix with other kids? Well, again, that's... Well, it's, a, it's not a good thing at the moment, but um, I mean, my daughter's doing play dates for her daughter with friends from school. And one mum will take a whole load of them down the park, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or down the, the muscle research, the lagoons and places. Um, it's really difficult. I mean, we've, the big thing, I think, is to recognise when we do get them back. The school closures are almost yeah. definitely essential, I mean, at the moment. But when we do get them back, the emphasis must be on their well-being and particularly the younger ones trying to make it as much like a kindergarten type environment as you possibly can, because that's the most important thing at the moment. You know, you build the learning, the, the formal learning on top of that. So, um, and I think I'm, I think the teachers and people really, really appreciate that. Uh, I hope parents do too. It, it must be difficult for teachers as well. Very. Because, <laughs> I mean, teaching, I know there are cynics around, but who would say otherwise, but you know, most people, I think, would accept that teaching is a vocation. And you go into vocation because you want to give something. Mm -hmm. you, you want to support and help people. Yeah. And here you are sitting at home, perhaps, and thinking, well, there's all these kids out there that could use some help. And there's me stuck here and them. Well, stuck actually, I think, most, I think most teachers are feeling that because they're doing the online stuff. Okay. Uh, and, and an awful lot of teachers have pet children themselves so they're doing the whole that whole thing of I mean the stress on families at the moment of parents home working and also trying to do the homeschooling of their children yeah. 
Um, it's not good for anyone. I mean, we all really need a, a jolly good break at the end of this. Yeah, it's it's infuriating. But at the same time, teachers know that, that, that they don't want the pandemic to spread because of the children being in school. So, well, I mean, I've I've been emailing people today saying, I just wish I was back in the school with the children. Because they really do miss them. I mean, you used to miss mine. You love them. They're yours. Uh, Well, they're not. You just borrow them every day. But um, it's rotten. Once this is over, we've really, really got to make sure that we're doing the very, very best for them. So in in that regard, then, wanting to do the very best for them, is there any chance that this starting at five can be revisited? Or is that well, I sincerely hope so. I mean, we've, we've got chapters on how we could go about doing it in the book. Yeah. Having a communication this evening with a guy called James Urquhart, we're both right on Skeptical Scott. And uh, he was saying, well, what could we do? And I said, well, what, what we really need is more early years practitioners who can be working, the people that are trained for the younger kids, child development, play pedagogy and outdoor education. They get good, great yeah. training in that. More of them moving into the early years of primary school, but we've, we've you know, the Scottish government's already had a, a real issue about training enough people to cover the expansion of nursery education. And James and I, both being of a certain sure. age, remembered after the Second World War. And it's going to be very similar trying to put the country back together again as it was after the war. There was well, an emergency training scheme for teachers, and we both remembered being taught by blokes it was men that were brought in to come out for services who were great teachers because they'd had they'd done loads of things they'd been to loads of places and they had all sorts of experiences and it would be great wouldn't it to have an emergency training scheme for people who think that they could do this with kids yeah um with perhaps a uh, the, the the option a career path that could mean that they train as an as an earliest practitioner uh, and a quick get you into the system but then you can take a career path that would qualify you to be an early years teacher okay and then we really would be able to do a kindergarten stage okay cool seemed a good idea to me i don't know whether we're going to turn it into an article or not but well well maybe somebody watching and listening tonight uh, who feels this makes a lot of sense can take it forward because that's really what this show's about it's the nation talks so the nation so you're talking to the nation just now hopefully and and people will hear it, and if they feel strongly as you do, they'll take it forward. Mary Breyer is asking a very good question, I have to say. She says, are there any studies going on just now about how COVID is affecting kids? No, loads, loads. Lots of organisations have been following it through Children's Parliament, been talking to children, Connect, the the Parent Teacher Association has been talking to parents about what's going on. Um, But there's loads of official research studies all over the world, and... um, the really bad news from my point of view is, and I, I, I thought it would be, that the children who seem to be sort of getting the worst deal of the lot, the ones that seem to be getting the, the worst effects are the five to six, seven-year-olds. It's that age group because, well, they've been uprooted from their nurseries, you know, and into school and school's perhaps not been the best place. And now they're not even there and they've not got their friends. And I think it doesn't surprise me. And that's why I really think we should be looking you know, because we tend to focus on the exams because that's been so high profile and such yeah. dreadful lot of medicine. But actually, you know, we forget the little ones. But really, it has been the, the research is suggesting that the, the P1s and 2s at the moment are the ones that people are most anxious about. What do you think this is going to cost us? What you've just described and the effect on the very young ones? If you give children the opportunity to play, and you look after them and you care about them and they feel loved. They develop resilience. They are incredibly, you know, they're born to be resilient. So as long as we do the best thing by them and really, really think about it. I mean, one of the things I, st- I still don't know, I wrote to the Scottish government recently and said, have you actually decided to abandon the tests for the primary ones this year? Because I've not heard that you have. But surely you can't be planning to go ahead with it. I've not had a reply. I mean, it's things like that. um, We don't want to be doing that sort of thing to them at the moment. We want to be making sure that really right through the, right up to the middle of the primary school, we're we're constantly, well, beyond, (laughs) for all of them, we're concentrating on well-being. Okay. Uh, But particularly on the the play-based in the early stages. Well, maybe, maybe the people watching this tonight can help. Who's responsible for that decision in the Scottish government? 
I suppose John Swinney. And I mean, we, we've got this is the thing with the the thing that we would call a kindergarten stage. It's yeah. um, it's split down the middle. So the first half of it, when they're in nursery, that's under Marie Tard as Minister for Children and Young People. And um, the second half, once they go into P1, that's under John Swinney. So it's sort of like this really critical stage. It's got <laughs> down the middle, and um, it's not anybody's sort of, you know, it's maybe it's pulled maybe. into education that way, yeah. and then we call it childcare that way, and it's not just childcare; they are learning. Yeah, maybe maybe Marie Todd's uh, responsibilities ought to be extended to seven. Then I would love it. She, she's because she's been so keen on the outdoor learning, and she she really seems to get. There you are, folks. <laughs> there you are, folks. That's part of the solution. Uh, you want to get in there and help Sue and others to persuade Marie the Scottish government that Marie Todd should uh, be responsible for kids right up to the age of seven. Is that right? Great. Sounds anyway, all right to me. <laughs> that, I have no idea on. how those things work, though, because, it, I mean, it's, well, it's the early level well, and it's in nursery. Really, I mean, we have an early level minister. Yeah. His politicians should take on board the best advice. They're getting some good advice tonight. Uh, they need to balance up lots of different things. I appreciate that. But nonetheless, here's a suggestion. Tonight, contact Marie Todd if you feel as strongly as Sue does and ask her. There she is at the beginning of um, realising the ambition during the fall. There you are. <laughs> there you are. Now, she's, she's uh, as, as far as I can gather from Sue, she's doing an excellent job uh, for kids up to five. Let's see if she can do an excellent job for kids up to seven. How does that sound? That sound? Right? Good. Okay, there you are. That's, that's, right that, that's something anybody can do right now. I want but to, please, sorry. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of everybody at Upstart because I've not asked them. No, no, no. no and no, no one's suggesting you are. You, you've, you've answered a, a straightforward question that I asked you, and you've answered it truthfully. Listening to Joe Biden tonight, he says we should all be speaking the truth to each other. Yeah. And I happen to agree with Joe because I've just experienced a long period of time where the leader of the free world spoke lies to everyone. And we have to get away from that, right? And this is part of getting away from it, folks. Mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, we, we should be talking the truth to each other. And we shouldn't be hiding away because the bad guys win when the good folks hide away. That's, 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 if, if the last five years have taught us anything, they've taught us that. Here's... Janie McDonald, you may well have dealt with this and you may not want to go over it again, but the question Janie is asking is, does Sue think that private boarding schools are responsible for a particular worldview uh, of the kind that Boris Johnson and his ilk have? Um, I would certainly say they, they're not um, without responsibility. I mean, back Boris Johnson's early childhood was pretty rotten, actually, um, and the whole elitist education. I mean, in fact, I've got a piece in the Scottish Review today that says um, adverse childhood experiences are obviously much worse if you're living in poverty. Yeah, but yeah. if you look at Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and, and you see what happens when they're wedded to a sort of um, belief in their own entitlement, you can see that it does, yeah, clearly, it's not a good thing. Maybe it's only me, but the impression I get Johnson comes across to me like a blundering idiot, but maybe I've misjudged him. Trump, by, by contrast, always came across to me like a little boy lost, desperate for approval, desperate for somebody to say something nice. And if nobody was around to say anything nice, he said it about himself. And he was completely and utterly unaware that he was doing so. I just found that extraordinary. Well, the biographies, yeah, the biographies suggest he had an absolutely miserable child. So he's, he's just a toddler, still, still struggling with toddlerhood, really. Yeah. I noticed his mother said that, uh, she said, Donald is a bit of an idiot, I hope he never goes into politics. We've had some really good questions. Thank you, everyone, for the questions. Let, let's move on to talking about the bigger picture, if I can call it that. What are your views on Scottish independence? My personal views. Upstart is non-political. But um, I, I worked for the independence movement in um, 2014 and I did a bit of sort of wandering around with leaflets and driving people about and things. And I uh, remember that night before on the Royal Mile and I was gutted the next morning. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, it was for me, it was my birthday. <laughs> wasn't. It wasn't. Present, huh? It was. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, 
So if you're to look down the pike a bit, as they say in the States, look down the road, say two years hence, what would you like to see happen in Scotland? COVID has just blown things apart, really, hasn't it? I'd personally like to see us get IndyRef2 relatively soon and try and get back into Europe. I mean, always in the educational context, I've thought, I wish to God we would look north to the Nordic countries rather than south yeah. to the English, because the sorts of things we've been doing in terms of this accountability agenda and introducing being more testing is, is absolutely just more like England, and it's miserable. So... I think I'd, I'd want to be sort of, I mean, the Nordic countries have invited us to join them, I believe, yeah. <laughs> which would be great as far as I'm concerned, because I think we've got an awful lot more in common with them as a people than, than we have with the country I was born. Well, it's interesting. I remember talking to Billy Kay and he was telling me a lovely story about how I think at one time the Danes and the Swedes were fighting over the Danes relinquishing control of what's now southern Sweden, which was part of Denmark, if I've got this right. They decided each to appoint a neutral observer stroke negotiator. And it turned out that both the negotiators came from Pitt and Weem. (laughs) If you're watching tonight and I got that wrong, do correct me, but uh, that that was my my recollection. Uh, Well done, Pitt and Weem. Simply because the Scots were hugely influential in both Sweden and Denmark at one time. Mm-hmm. So the Scandinavian is of long standing. In fact, anything that's done to restore it, we'd be restoring it. It wouldn't be creating it. It would be the fact that it, w- it was there way back centuries ago. That Scots, I mean, Greek, for example, yeah. is a corruption of, of Greg. Yeah. Uh, oh, and to Norway, so, to Norway, so, to Norway, all the same, yeah. Connections. Yeah. Are there any thoughts you would, you would like to put us with? Any, any particular issues or topics or themes that you feel we haven't covered fully or you yeah. would like? There is one thing that's bothering me, and that, that, that's that I, I'm going on and on about this kindergarten stage, but actually it, it's not just three to seven. I think that that's what we should be doing in the educational sphere. But there's also that bit before where we really do need to be supporting parents more to make sure that they, they're not to tell them what to do, but to give them the wherewithal um, to, to, to ensure that, that, that they can do the very, very best for their kids. And I have to say, I think we missed a trick with the baby box because, well, well as I say, I visit Finland a bit. And I was actually in the Finnish embassy when they, they said this to me, but one, one guy said, what baby box are you doing? And I said, yes. And she said, well, why, why are you just, just like a gift? And I said, well, it isn't. And he said, no, 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 in Finland, um, you know, you, you get your baby box, you sign up to go to parents' meetings, which is not lessons or anything, it's just meetings. We expect, you know, parents to be involved in helping each other to, to sort out. So we could have done a lot more, I think, with the baby books in terms of support for parents, because it's really difficult these days, particularly parents that have what they call advantage, really, really hard because you're so isolated, there's so many other stresses, and people do need support. And I, I can say that as someone who had a baby in 1986 and um, I'd, I'd never sort of really had much to do with very little children before. And I had not. Yeah. We really do need to support people because in the old days there were grannies and aunties and all sorts of other people that yeah. would help you out and they're not there anymore. Yeah, yeah we need to be looking from pre-birth right through to, in fact, the definition of early childhood in um, the UN it's up to the age of eight, so pre-birth to eight. Yeah. And that then has massive long-term impact on the society because you end up with healthier kids, kids who are more well-adjusted, kids who are better able to learn. And it just means that you, you, you're creating a good future for Scotland from its children. That's great. That's super. Susan Campbell Creighton is agreeing with you. She says, we are sending our children to school with immature, social, emotional, listening and questioning when Scandinavian countries test their seven-year-olds, they are more advanced than ours. Except that they don't do the national testing. The I mean, Finland, wonderful country, keeps coming up at the top of the charts in, in, in educational, uh, but also top of the well-being charts. They don't have any national exams until the final exam before they leave school at secondary. And they don't have any inspectors, but they have an awful lot of sort of peer checking and, and they do sampling and um, seems to work. And it's to do with trust, you know, rather than control. And trust actually 
does actually tend to be quite a helpful thing to do with people who are in a profession because they want to do something good for the, yeah. you know, people they're working with. It sounds wonderful. But the acid test, I suppose, is what sort of society is the grown-up Finland? Does it have they're, advantages over our society in that regard? They're, they're um, a pretty sort of um, doer <laughs> on the whole. Alcohol is not readily available. It costs quite a lot because they did have a big problem with alcoholism, which uh, a lot of people put down to the darkness and uh, and a pretty doer society because a very it's like Scotland you know you you you're bringing children up in what is a hard land where it's often dark yeah. and often cold and it, it does lead to a certain sort of oh well we've got to make them tough and and the Finns of course were constant wars with the Russians so there, there were lots of deaths and things in the family I so know. I think they've they've got a history that's not but they I have found them really kind really balanced. And sensible. I love the sensibleness yeah. of them, and um, and very good at democracy, social democracy. So Excellent. That's what we need. We need to be good at democracy. We need to be good at democracy. We need to be stable, and we need to be. And we can be doer if we want to. Well, this has been great. We've just about run out of time, Sue. I want to say thank you very much for being our guest tonight. I think, and I expect that lots of people watching and listening will have had enormous food for thought. And thank you for that. I do appreciate it. Well, uh, I, I tweeted as Upstart Scott, incidentally, if anybody wants to join. And we're nearly at 10,000. So um, Upstart well, Scott. Are, upstart Scott. That's where you should head for tonight after the show. But we're almost through. Thank you again, Sue. I thank you. I have some great guests coming up on the show. We're back next week with the one and only Roger Mullen. So if you care about Scotland's future, and I suspect everyone watching and listening does, then you really don't want to miss Roger next Wednesday. Oh, and look out for the Constitution column in the Sunday National this weekend. It's written by my great friend, Dr. Elliot Bulmer, who's forgotten more about constitutions than almost everyone in Scotland. Uh, oh, by the way, don't forget this. All the programmes on Indie Live are available if you go to www.whatsonguide.scot because in addition to the TNT show, there's a whole raft of other offerings. Do go there. There's lots of great stuff. Thank you again and good night. A big thank you to Sue. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night all. <laughs>